0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We've heard the Magnificat twice now, um, and you might pull it out. As you can imagine, it will be at least a point of reference this morning. Magnificat is that great hymn of grace. We think of a blue-robed Mary, always in blue, giving us this great hope. But at the heart of Advent is hope, but hope that is grounded in fear. Fear of judgment, fear of God's law, the law that man has broken, even though somehow he may not understand how broken almost from the first moment of his birth, a fear that starts somewhere deep in that place in the center of our being we call the soul or maybe the heart. It's that same place that when it is empty, empty of that which it was meant to be full, God, and not just God, any God, but the God who made us, who called us into being, who loved us into being, and loves us still. Prior belovedness, we can call it. The knowledge that he loved us first before we even knew he existed, before we learned to love him back, if any of us have learned to do that. Two motivations, then, if you like. Fear, which is really a message of grace, and John Cries out like one shouts fire in a crowded theater. You have to get the word out. It's hard to sustain a life of discipleship on an adrenaline rush, however, and I don't think that's the plan. Fear or this sense of prior belovedness? Or can they come together? What do you do? When the love of your life is gone, it's a good question around this time of year when so many of us are drawn to loss. When the love of your life is absent, when your heart aches for emptiness, even a week away can be an eternity. Well, you fill that void. You fill your life and you fill your heart with things that will make you feel fulfilled. And when your heart still aches, you fill it fuller, fuller, fuller. And yet that peace which you yearn for, that fulfillment, peace on earth, peace with God and with mankind, never comes. So you seek to propitiate an angry God with sacrifices, with promises to do better, to try harder. And that doesn't work either. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. There's a dispensationalist in all of us. God has set up a whole system of propitiation Of sacrifice to appease his wrath and yet now in the heart of the darkness of Advent a light is cutting through another message is coming a message that's been there from the beginning but a message that isn't so easy to hear when Christ comes we journey through Advent awaiting in our hearts that moment. We join a fearful, fretful world awaiting judgment, but waiting for something more. Now, with Mary, we see over the horizon, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Last week, we dealt with a figure who was motivated by fear. With John the Baptist, his message was grace. But what impelled him was fear. This week we deal with one who, if she knows fear, deals with it and finds a deeper motivation, faith. Yet she starts in faith with fear, the fear of the Lord. His mercy is for those who fear him. As our text says, that fear, the fear of the Lord, precedes mercy. The fear of the Lord, yes, but fear per se, the fear of anything other than the Lord, breeds self-defense and self-everything. That fear turns us entirely inward on ourselves. And then to lash out on everybody else or onto anybody who is perceived as getting in our way. Fear. Which says, there is something out there stronger than me using that strength against me. Now, fear is about power primarily. We touched on that last week. When may that power be used against me? Justly, when I am in the wrong. Then I go on the defensive. It has been said if you are in the right, you don't need a defense. And if you are in the wrong, you don't have a defense. It's hard to live that way, however. <laughs> How often do we find ourselves on the defensive? That's why we have loved ones who are close to us. It has been said, if you are in the right, you don't need you don't need a defense. You let it go. You say let the world say what it will. If you're in the wrong, you don't have one. The same thing, you let it go. You say, all right, guilty is charged. But when we fear the Lord, there are two things here. Fear, yes, and guilt. And both make us defensive. And being on the defensive is catastrophic spiritually. It's spiritual death. It puts us completely off bounds and completely out of the reach of of the God whom we fear. So we look to Mary today for faith. Dressed in blue, exuding peace, having said yes, we look to Mary as this icon of yes. We look to her to set us free from fear. Well, what does Mary do? She preaches. And what does she preach? Look at the Magnificat if you want. What is the subject, the substance of her preaching? It's what we call the great reversal. Mary, meek and wild, mild rather, and the words surely of some young... It's a Freudian slip. (laughs) And the words, the words are of some young revolutionary. Listen to this. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. That is Mary's message. That's the hope that Mary has set her heart upon. Total turning upside down of the status quo. She's talking about richness and poverty, hungry hunger and food and feasting. She's looking at the whole material world and turning it upside down. Radical redistribution. This sounds like a big job for big government, if ever there was one. And by the way, such talk makes me nervous. I sit in the richest, most powerful nation on earth, and the most well-defended. And that gives me a great deal of peace. Defense here is big business, publicly and privately. Privately at every level of society for the home to the international sphere. Self-defense is big business. Self-defense is America's business. And it gives me no end of peace, let me assure you. But Mary now puts fear in my heart, not faith, with this talk of radical redistribution. Redistribution of what? Again, different ways of saying this, we use it terminology that I call the three P's. I didn't make it up, but it fits. Power, prestige, and possessions. The three commodities which are traded back and forth. The units of culture which are constantly changing hands, determining who is up and who is down, who is in, who is out, and where everyone else is situated within our culture. Who has worth who does not, who matters, who doesn't, who counts, and who counts for nothing. All this, in God's new world order, is to be rearranged? No, maybe there's something more to this. I've argued before that if you just take the poor and make them rich, you haven't solved the problem at all of inequality. You simply traded the players, And if riches were a curse for the poor, for the rich, rather, they're now a curse for the poor, and nothing has gotten any better, and history rather eloquently bears that observation out. Is this all that God is saying? We're just going to change things around? I don't think so. That would be revolutionary enough. It would have to be done with conflict, I would guess, class warfare, blood in the streets, by real revolution, what has that got to do with Christianity? Well, some Christians would say a great deal. But my impression is that those liberation movements, which have claimed this as their motivation, have been co-opted by other kinds of revolutionaries than the Blessed Virgin Mary. Even though this canticle, Mary's Prayer, has been banned for public recitation in many South American countries. I'll leave you to fill in the blanks. There's something there if you have ears to hear. But I'm not arguing simply redistributing the goodies. I'm arguing changing hearts and minds so that we all learn to give up whatever we've had, to let it go. And how is that to be done? Not by fear, not by force, and not by power. Such things never achieve anything. It's to be done by changing our hearts and minds. Yes. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It is to be done by faith. And faith, as we know, is the work of God. Faith is the work of God in our hearts, the gift of God. We don't work to get faith. We work with faith. Faith is granted. It's pure gift. You don't work to build up faith either. I'll go out on a ledge. You let faith work to rebuild you. Let me say it again. You don't work to build up your faith. Faith is not some kind of a muscle. Make-believe is a muscle. Faith is an entirely different thing. Faith is a given. You let faith work to rebuild you. And it is not the faith in you that rebuilds you. It is faith in Christ, and it is the faith of Christ. A little Latin phrase, it's Luther, so you can trust it. (laughs) In ipsa fide Christus adest. In faith itself, Christ is really present, a hundred percent. When Christ gives us that gift of faith that breaks open our hearts and turns our lives upside down, He has also given us Himself. Faith in Christ binds. To its object, which is only always Christ. This is why I'm always frustrated by those who say you shouldn't teach your children to believe in such and such and such and such because how will they believe in Christ? I say, Do you think our faith in Christ is a product of us? Let's go back to the beginning. It's not make-believe. The faith in Christ is a gift of Christ. It's a completely different thing than us putting our trust in some benevolent spirit. There is no conflict. There is no clash unless that faith is tangled up somewhere in the works. Faith in Christ binds us to its object, which is only always Christ. But here's the catch. To be bound to Christ, we must first be unbound to the unholy three, power, prestige, possessions. The things that have filled our hearts in an attempt to compensate for that aching void. And when we start to trade these, to try to let them go, we find out how tightly we cling to them. How great our fear that our whole self-worth, our whole identity is invested, tied up in these three. And if you want to let them go, just wait and see what the world tells you back. Fear sets in then. Fear in those who have, that they will not have for long. Fear in those who don't have, that they will have even less. Fear sets in and fear looks to power when it goes on the defensive So power becomes the principal one of the three. Can Christianity be co-opted to become a religion of power? (laughs) Yet for Mary, power is found in powerlessness, in humility. There is no one more powerless in her society than an unwed mother. Mary's willing choice of this option, leaving the details to God to work out, constitutes an almost suicidal act of surrender. This is what we call the theology of the cross. She is literally throwing herself into the arms of God. What does that say, that the theology of the cross means we have a death wish? No, we wish to die to be reborn. Mary has faith Faith that whatever she lets go of, that God will take care of and give her back what she was always meant to have. She has faith in the mercy of that same God who brings the law, who brings fear. In that God's power over everything and over her life and death, and in that God's goodness toward her, God turned in love and mercy. Mary chooses right. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, she says. For he who is mighty, listen to this, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Who's done the work? He has done the work. Not Mary. He has done the work. Who has had the faith? Mary has held it but it's been God's gift to her. God gets to work with the faith that he's offered to Mary, the faith that Mary has received. We'll tease that out, not today. The rest is history, salvation history. What then about the great reversal? We're still waiting for that. God has to start over again with every new generation of Christians. God is not just all-powerful and all-good. God is very, very patient. But work he does in us and on us. And Mary, Mary stands as the supreme embodiment of that work, that surrender of attachment to power and prestige and possessions, that work of God that begins the Christian's life and carries it through. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This says it all. Blessed is she who believed, who had faith, who trusted. She knows that the aching void within her will be filled someday. As the promise is fulfilled with God's word, with God the word within her. Blessed is she who trusted in not power, prestige, and possessions, but P for promises, the promises of God, the promise made to Abraham, the promise that now makes of this young village girl, in Rowan Williams' terms, the person who stands on the frontier between promise and fulfillment, between earth and heaven, between the two testaments, Mary. This is the turning point of history. Mary's faith has made it possible for light to shine at last into the darkness within and without. The great reversal is this to be rebuilt. We must first be torn down. God will not, cannot build on any foundation other than the faith He will give us, the faith He has given us, the faith He is giving us. So to unlearn all the falsehoods that we have wrought, divest ourselves of all we have invested into the three Ps, is the work, too, of a lifetime. Repentance, going back and again and again to the place where we got off the track. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary stands at that place, that crucial junction where the covenant succession, the path of pilgrimage that started with Abraham makes its most critical turn. Her yes, as that of all those who have been challenged with covenant succession and affirmed it, secures the fulfillment of the promise. But what we exalt, honor, and revere in Mary is no work of her especially this act of faith, even her yes, as Mary herself says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Holy is his name. Holy is the work he has done, is doing even now, for her, for us, and for his own holy name. There is so much in this magnificent magnificat. It is worth saying it every day, as we may. Luther wrote a whole commentary just on this transcendent incandescent text. Let's close in the prayer, Luther's own words, Luther's own prayer, with which he ended this work. And I quote, let us pray. We pray, God, to give us a right understanding of this Magnificat, an understanding that consists not merely in brilliant words, but in glowing life in body and soul. May God, may Christ grant us this through the intercession and for the sake of his dear mother, Mary. Amen.